Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Money just perverts everything. At this point, I could stand to be a little perverted. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, Barack Obama said that woke people confuse trashing someone on Twitter with real social activism and change. How does it feel to be called out by a former president? <laughs> yeah, I didn't know he said this shows you how like how much I don't read political stuff. I had no idea he said that. But I am so inactive on Twitter. You're the one who's try, you're the one who says things on Twitter. Like I just like I do nothing. I retweet no. you. You SJWs, like, you you think <laughs> if you like call out Dave Chappelle or or like <laughs> Kevin Hart, like you've done your job. You've you've, you've you know changed the world. Like uh, I, I hate the. We've talked about like I hate the word woke anyway. But yeah. you know, um, but the people who are in real danger are the people who are swinging into anti woke, like our dear friends at uh, the uh, two uh, two psychologists for beers podcast, <laughs> yeah. who are just getting themselves in trouble for. <laughs> Wait, what happened? That- <laughs> I don't know. Well, like there was a there was. A, um, I think someone called called them out on their show notes where they. Um, included the word tits in the in the introduction i mean in the show notes um which was just a reference to a conversation that they had with the woman on on the show but i guess i i I do see it like you can i'll listen to them every once in a while i like their podcast and that you can just see the seeds of a future like turn you know like uh just uh that kind of radicalized anti PC, anti-woke, free speech, Christina Hoff Summers kind of turn. Kind of. Oh, yeah. They're there. They're, you think they're already fr- there? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so today we're going to we're gonna talk about our Patreon listener-selected episode topic, split brain patients. And we're going to talk about the experiments and then the new experiments challenging the... Various different things. It's fascinating. The whole subject there is it's really cool. And it actually connects, I think, a little to the Nagel piece we did last time. What is it like to be a bat? And it, uh, yeah, it connects. It connects to just in general, like discussions we've had about the self, you know, and like the, the narrative self and like, yeah. And I actually in the show notes, I'm going to say it now just so people actually go to the show notes. It's basically like a bibliography I've put in. Like I feel like I uh, like the references of a research article, um, <laughs> along but, uh, with a bunch of just gratuitous 
hits. But before that. Yes. Before that. <laughs> I didn't realize that was a cue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're like the left brain and the right brain. Uh, <laughs> that's that's actually not a bad metaphor. We are one self. Uh, we're like those mirror twins. Uh, there was, I, I sent you this piece. Actually, I, I heard this guy interviewed on the Robert Wright podcast it was you know meaning of life or blogging heads or both or I don't, I don't totally get how that works but it was the robert wright podcast had um this guy preston green on and they were talking about his paper that he was published in erkentness uh, what's the journal anyway it's an article that he published um, and then also did a kind of popularized version of it in the New York Times and the Sunday Review entitled, Are We Living in a Computer Simulation? Let's Not Find Out. <laughs> Experimental findings will either be boring or extremely dangerous. I guess, should I try to just summarize the general idea here? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So Nick Bostrom, I'm sure we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but he's come up with an argument that, and I, it gets framed in a bunch of different ways, but the basic idea is if we assume that human beings will eventually develop the computational power to simulate human consciousness, and if they then develop the, the desire if we don't already have it, to simulate the lives of their ancestors in various different parts of the world. If, if, if that's true, then it's overwhelmingly likely that we are in a simulation, that this, all this has happened before, and right now we are in one of those simulations. Assuming that this is possible and assuming that if it was possible, we would want to create simulations like what if Donald Trump won the election in 2016? What, you know, what if uh, the U.S. had won World War II? Uh, countless variations of human history. They'll just be interested in, in seeing that. Well, the chances that we're in the original, the like base reality according to Bostrom, is very, very low because there's going to be so many hundreds of billions, probably more. There's a lot of, like, there's a lot of math here, but, but so many more simulations than there will be uh, realities. Well, there'll be one reality. And so the chance that we're living in the reality is very low. So that's just the, the, the background. Um, apparently, physicists now are able to potentially uh, run studies or do a test or something that will help to determine whether or not we are living in a computer simulation. I don't know how this, is wor this would work. It has something to do with um, little glitches in simulations, and we could test to see if those glitches are in our universe. But Preston Green's point, he's a philosopher, is that, look, think about what we're doing here. Either, on the one hand, we won't find out anything, which won't prove that we're not in a simulation, and it'll just prove that we don't have the technology to, to discover it yet. We still absolutely could be in a simulation. Or, 
we will discover we're in a simulation and maybe that will make the simulators decide to turn us off because their uh, experiment is now corrupted. And so there's no point in running us anymore. And so the entire universe as we know it will be destroyed. Either way, we shouldn't do this. Like there's no upside really. Um, the success of the experiment could very well lead to the annihilation of all life as we know it. Oh, right. Um, this is like, uh, <laughs> there's so many assumptions here. Like, I, I, honestly, I'm a little surprised the New, <laughs> New York Times published this. <laughs> like, okay, so... So the the original reality are like some social psychologists who don't want you to find out like that you're in the experiment because it would ruin it. <clears throat> um, and they would like turn off the simulation. I just, I don't find that compelling. Like I, you know, they're going <laughs> to, you don't well, think like, they'll why? turn it off. No, like why? Like you're running, say you're running a bunch of simulations and like, if it's anything analogous to the way we run simulations now um, on on whatever outcomes we're trying to model, we're running thousands upon thousands of simulations with, you know, trying to figure out if if there is a pattern that emerges. Probably they're not paying attention to any individual one. But if anything, like it might like you're running, say you're running a bunch of simulations and in one of them, uh, people became aware that they were in a simulation like that just seems like it would be interesting. Like if I'm taking, like if I'm really, you know, taking his his assumptions seriously, like they'd be like, oh, cool, what's going to happen now? Not to not to mention, like the people like Bostrom already believe d that we're in a simulation, and so they're act they they might be acting as if we're in a simulation and convincing the world, like, you know, I don't know that the physicists conducting experiments would be the 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 thing that you know. I don't know. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So I think those are two separate points. I'm going to try yeah, to defend yeah. this guy because he sounded like a very nice guy talking to Bob Wright. Yeah. Um, regarding your first point that they would find that interesting, I think the idea is, well, if they were going to find that interesting, they pro th th they've already found out what happens when uh people find out they're in a simulation probably right like right. So, whatever so the, that you can you can yeah. learn from that is something they've probably already learned what they haven't learned is you know what happens if donald trump is elected president in 2016 or what you know so maybe that's one defense of that and regarding your other point that <laughs> why now why just because because yeah. what will the experiment experimental finding really prove it'll prove oh here's something that might lend weight to this uh hypothesis but <laughs> yeah. they're not going to definitively prove that they're, they're not going to find like little ones and zeros in the universe or in the atom or something there is i so i'm not smart enough to understand this but recently so i looked this up i'll put this in show notes as well i forgot to send it to you but there was a, a paper published um, in 2017, that by physicists that argued um, based on the math of these particular quantum effects uh, that they were studying, that uh, I'll just tell you the conclusion, and I, I don't know that I can put together how they came to this conclusion, but 
but they're convinced that mathematically that it is actually impossible that we're living in a simulation. And so their argument is based on the complexity of these really small phenomenon that it would require, uh, to model it, it would require more computing power than is present in the universe. So their, their argument is a mathematical one. It's not even a probabilistic one. So uh, I don't know what to make of it, but I want to believe that they've proven mathematically that we're not. <laughs> that we're now, not wait a minute. Hold on. You're on record on this podcast as saying that you think this is an empty claim that we are in a simulation. That Ye- it is not, uh, that there's no content to the claim that we are living in a simulation. Yeah, that, that, that you there that? is, yeah, that there is, I think it was when we were discussing, you know, what, what if a, a, a demon was creating all of this as an illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all of the, right, like that, that this table is solid to me, that my actions have an effect on you. All of that stuff, like all of that layer of reality is, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if it's being represented in a computer or if it's being represented however it is being represented now, right? Like the, you know, you, you could call this universe and all of its laws of physics as essentially some sort of computation that's going on, whether it is being represented on some, you know, some other beings, uh, graphics card or, or not, I don't think has any implication. I think it's actually indistinguishable. Like, uh, you know, what is like, how is this universe represented? The only thing that matters is, the belief that there's a layer of reality that could impose itself on us, right? So I guess the fear that they might unplug this um, would, right? You like that could be a genuine fear. So I like I buy that that might be a genuine fear that they're going to unplug. They're going to unplug us, but I, I I don't. The point, but the paper that uh, that I was quoting here, um, it's just trying to to prove that this is in fact not a simulation um and you know i still think i still stick to my guns that it doesn't matter so then because the reason i asked is because you said i like to think that they <laughs> yeah uh that they've proven it right like, like you care but really you might not care i guess but here's here's one little wrinkle it might be that the things they're trying to test don't require that everyone be conscious, uh, all human beings be conscious, or that all these parts of the world are are present. And so it could be that in a lot of our interactions, those are not with other conscious beings, but are just part of the simulation. If we are among the chosen who are granted consciousness, that would be a like a substantive difference with right, how we like, understand the world. Like right? the the Rick and Morty episode where everybody's <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> there, I'm sure there's a Rick and Morty episode. <laughs> Wait, didn't we watch that one together? Didn't we do that for a Patreon? Yeah, we did. But yeah. that one it was like everyone was on the same level or not? No, I guess not. Uh no, no. The aliens were running it and and all the other people were actually really dumb because they were like all of their computing power was <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> it was, yeah. And so the way that they got out of it was like to to crash the computer. Um yeah, and I suppose like I I could like I still think like there are other ways in which this problem presents itself like like you you know, if you're if you endorse solipsism of some sort or, or you're just a skeptic about whether or not everybody else 
has the same uh, thoughts and feelings as you if you truly think epistemically like it's completely like i don't i really genuinely probably don't know whether you tamler are are a uh, fully conscious being that's just what someone who wasn't a fully conscious being would say <laughs> right like shift the- there is nothing to distinguish the behavior of any human being from my you know like it's not like i i think it just wouldn't it, it just doesn't yeah. matter right like if you cry out in pain um when i hit you i like i suppose you could be a complete computer simulation without consciousness but i you know i think it's i actually a big part of me agrees with you that this is not a pseudo problem because there are all these wrinkles like you know it it does seem a little different if we are like reality tv for some other <laughs> like uh group of people that are living outside reality as we understand it but at at some level it really doesn't matter if basic the you know the the basic reality is quarks or bits right like exactly it's it's like we don't understand how that would be true either way right i think that's right i yeah i think the only i think the only thing is the belief that there is sort of another layer of reality that can impose itself on us maybe that's a little daunting um and and you get that if if you believe in the supernatural order of things already there is another thing that i kept thinking about when when um when thinking about this particular problem and that is that like there there is a rise in both this simulation talk and like alternate reality talk and i i feel i can't help but feel like there are sociological reasons why (laughs) why of uh there's a lot of sci-fi about alternate realities you know us being one of just many 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 universes one of many sets of simulations I feel like there is just some anime in society that's making us like gravitate towards some of these. Totally. (laughs) Right. Yes. I completely Uh, agree. There's uh, some sort of the same kind of like Dirk Durkheim, like social isolation leads to more thought experiments about, (laughs) you know, like the fact that we're all, you know, living in the matrix or in some computer program or I wonder if you could do some way of, not demonstrating that scientifically, but, you know, do some sort of analysis of of those trends. Yeah. Like, I wonder, like, when Descartes comes up with his thought experiment, oh. like, what are the conditions then and what, right. you know? Yeah, no, that would be, that is super interesting. It's, it, it's hard to know whether an idea gains traction, you know, for dumb reasons or for, for the, the deep reasons that, that, that we're proposing. But, but it just, it's, it's hard, like, what I want to know is, is it is it comforting to think that we're one of many realities or or is it distressing? Like, I feel like it is scratching an itch for some people to believe this. Yeah. Um, but I don't know what exactly it's doing. Right. Because, yeah. Like, why does Bostrom want to believe this? You know, uh, Robin Hansen, the economist, he's sometimes on Tyler Cowen's podcast. That's Robin Hansen said, maybe we would, if we found out we were living in a simulation, we would give less to charity and we would put less into retirement. Because I guess if you don't really think Ethiopia is there, and you could take that two ways, like is Ethiopia not there because they haven't, they've only programmed 
uh, Houston, really, and that's all they're looking at? Or is it not right. really there in the sense that not all of us aren't really here? But I think the idea is one way or another, it's not really there. And so we, don't, we shouldn't give money to, to starving kids. And like us, what is that? Right. Right, you know, like right. so us say, in forty years is. Uh, yeah. First of all, we could, this could just be a, like a two day experiment. Number one, and so maybe they want to test what's happened today. Right. So, um, so just I masturbate the, as many times. As <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only solution. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that that it is if not being here is taken to mean, well, Ethiopia doesn't really exist in the same way that I don't really exist. Right. Then I still think that that's com- the completely cruel. Like the, the fact that you can feel pain in this, whether or not it's a simulation, and that other people are reacting in a similar way. Like I think that it, it would be cruel to think, well, nothing really exists um, because I don't think that it would comfort you at all to be punched in the face um, th- to believe that you don't really exist, you know, that you're just being simulated. So I think it would be cruel. But if Ethiopia doesn't exist in the sense that you, you are the only consciousness and you are being like, it's, it's only rendered in 3D when you go to Ethiopia, right? like yeah. it's being created for you, then yeah, then it's some version of solipsism. And, and then why, why care? Or you could believe everybody is a robot. Yeah. I don't think that the simulation stuff um, is adding anything new to the, those kinds of like thought experiments, but you, but I think you'd be I, I think it's crazy to think that if we were being represented as ones and zeros instead of as whatever you know the p- quantum packets um, that this would make any difference, right? Like it's it's I, I agree. It's, it's I, yeah. I I like this idea you have about anime leading to this and why that would be comforting in an increasingly socially isolated world. Maybe it's that this kind of, you have some alternate explanation for the social isolation that you feel that it's just a, 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 like a natural part of existence. Yeah. And that maybe there are other uh, versions of the world that aren't as shitty of the, you know, of existence that aren't as shitty. Um, But yeah, it just does strike me as, you know, like from from the Ted Chang episode, uh, 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 stories that we were reading to Mr. Robot to one of my favorite TV shows, Counterpart. Uh, like there's so much talk of this. And I feel like, yeah, the belief that there there this is just one of the possible, tw- you know, this is a tweak where Donald Trump won or whatever. Or this is a tweak you know, that, yeah. that, that somehow that thinking of the counterfactuals is giving us something like, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe it makes people feel less alone in the universe. Or it kind of justifies the feeling of aloneness that they might already have, like, uh, or something. I don't know. It's probably a combination of so many different factors. It's it's like physics (laughs) emo-ness. Right. Well, one of the things that Robert Wright asked uh, Preston Green is, is all this simulation talk just religion for atheists? Yeah. It, you know, make, maybe this is just the way for certain people who to satisfy a spiritual need that they're no longer getting, that they used to get. Peeling away the layers of reality to find the true, like the true metaphysical 
like, yeah. like layer is yeah it seems as if it's all you can talk about gods and demons or you can talk about about a, a master race simulating us on a computer it does it does feel like the same thing just like a more plausible version it's like of the god same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is it that much more plausible? You know, in the end, right? Like, we still right. don't know why we're here. So, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what? And plus, if you believe that we're in a simulation, this might be a simulation in which a, a god does exist. So you got to just <laughs> part of their experiment is like, okay, we're going to create one universe in which God exists and people believe in him, and one in which he doesn't exist but people believe him. <laughs> uh, we're alone. Just for the record, I just... You think we're alone? I put money on that we're alone. If the, <laughs> the day that we create a plausible simulation is the day, you know, where where actual creatures are living out their lives, that's the day we'll all suspect that we might be in a simulation. I mean, here's the thing. We don't understand consciousness, so I don't get why people think we will be able to simulate it. Like, we're not close <laughs> to understanding it. Like, there's so much about it that we don't understand that to 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 assume that we're just going to be able to simulate it is... I don't know. Like, I, I think Bostrom understands this. But I think, like, he kind of says it almost dismissively. It does strike me as, why should we think that we're we will be able to do that? His point is yeah. like we have like a mil, ten million years or whatever, you know. But I, you know, I suppose, yeah, yeah, that's that's right. Those 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 arguments always turn on like you know in in an infinite on an infinite scale, right? So, uh, everything that could happen will happen. Um, Pascal's mugging. Yeah, exactly. I guess you could just you could be some sort of functionalist and say so long as we put information together in the same configuration as brains are put together, then it will emerge consciously. Like we don't have to know how to make it. All we have right. to do is know how to copy. Um, whatever. But I, from my perspective, if I don't if I don't believe that functionalism is true or that can explain consciousness. Yeah. then there's no reason for me to think that I am a simulation, my epistemic position. Yeah. It's hard to shake my like firm belief that this can't be as but you know, they could have fucking programmed that into me. I don't know. I don't know. So believe what you want, but don't not give to charity. That's fucked up. All right. Well, we will be back. Uh, I have to simulate taking a piss right now. <laughs> No, you don't need to take a piss because we're just in a simulation. <laughs> you can right. just piss your pants. You're not really pissing your pants. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> That's not really piss in your real pants. <laughs> it's just ones and zeros. All right, we'll be right back. <laughs> Tamler, uh, I'm currently in New York City, and it's officially the start of the holiday season because I can see all the Christmas lights are already up and Santa's on the corner. What do you like to do during the holidays? Well, you know, uh, since I'm Jewish, I participate in the annual war on Christmas. So I like to call Christmas trees holiday trees. I like to correct people if they say Merry Christmas. I'll say, uh, excuse me, it's Happy Holidays. That's probably my favorite thing to do. Um, and we're really gearing it up. I kind of even doubt there will be a Christmas this this year. But that's my favorite thing. But my second favorite thing to do is um, it is the time of year to donate money. Um, 
traditionally, where people start to think about others less fortunate than ourselves, and um, give well is a place that I turn to, and I will continue to turn to now every year. Um, giving is hard because when you donate, it's hard to know what a charity can actually accomplish with your money. Uh, it's, it could be if you want to help children, for example, you found two trustworthy organizations, but they're running different programs, and one is more effective than the other. One could save a child's life for every $300,000 donated, while the other can save a child's life for every $3,000 donated. And if you could tell the difference, donating one would be a 100 times more effective at saving children's lives than the other, and that's what GiveWell does. Um, they spend 20,000 hours each year researching which charities can do the most with your money. And then they recommend a short list of the best charities they found, and they share them with donors like you, our listeners. The recommended charities work to prevent children from dying of cheaply prevented diseases and help people in dire poverty. They treat intestinal parasites for less than a dollar, provide malaria treatment for less than $10, save a life for a few thousand dollars. If you are a first-time donor to GiveWell, this is your lucky day and the lucky day for the people you could be helping. Um, if you go to givewell.org slash wizards. First-time donors will have their donation matched up to $1,000. Again, if they donate through givewell.org slash verybadwizards. They don't take a cut of your donation. They do the exact opposite. They will match your donation up to $1,000. So once again, please, when you're thinking about giving this holiday season, go to givewell.org slash verybadwizards. And if you're a first-time donor, you will have your donation matched by GiveWell. And if you're not a first-time donor, obviously it is still the best bang for your charity buck. Thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time of the show where we like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners um, for all of their support. Uh, we really appreciate it. We uh, look forward to opening each and every email and reading it from you guys and and 
tweets and messages and complaints and arguments all of that stuff is really what keeps us going we really appreciate it if you do want to get in touch with us you can and please do you can email us very bad wizards at gmail.com if you have something short and sweet to say you can tweet to us at peas or at tamler or at very bad wizards um and you can take part in discussions on reddit um our subreddit r slash very bad wizards what's up with facebook did we give up on that we did but you can still follow us on instagram and yeah and and give us a nice review on itunes absolutely does that still matter like it does matter i think in getting getting people to at least be convinced that we might be worth listening to so and it matters for my self-esteem and you know what else matters is if you like, play us on Spotify, I think. Oh, yeah, Download us true. on Spotify. Subscribe on Spotify. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you, everybody, for all your interactions and your messages and your moral support and your criticisms and your arguments. We really appreciate all of the effort and time that you take. And if you would like to support us in more tangible ways, um, there are a couple ways you can do that. You can give us a one-time donation on PayPal. Or you can become one of our beloved patrons, and we appreciate them so much. They have given us our topic for today. They've given us so many topics, and they support us by giving uh, a small amount, in some cases a medium-sized amount, uh, for each episode. And that keeps the lights on, and we're we're just, uh, everyone is, so generous and and we really appreciate it and we try to do something in return we try to reciprocate by putting up some bonus episodes every so often and what are we're committing right now right to a bonus episode so i i put up a poll for our next bonus episode and bonus episodes are available for our two dollar or more supporters um if if it's one dollar or more you get uh, four volumes of dave's beats and access to ad free um versions of our episodes so anyway i put up a poll saying what would you like the topic of uh the next bonus episode and we've thrown a few out lately um one is top five deadwood characters one is another is the latest mr robot episode and then the other one was dark the netflix show german sci-fi mindfuck dark time travel um just a crazy awesome show and i'm really surprised about this I I already told you the results, but I think you were surprised too. Yeah. Um, Dark just kicked the shit out of the other two. So I'm looking (laughs) at the results right now. Latest Mr. Robot episodes got 56 votes. Top five Deadwood characters got 65 votes. And Dark got 150 votes. So almost three times as much as the others. That's, I I wouldn't have thought that. So um, I I, I. I think that they're trying to get us to to be a little more pro German. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if you can be more pro German than Pizarro, but <laughs> but uh, I could certainly be more pro German. So uh, we will do this. I have seen it. You still have to see the the second half of the second season. That's right. I have already like drawn out a Jonas's timeline on like eight taped together pieces of construction paper with my daughter so uh, (laughs) you have a ways to go but two weeks from today is that when we're two weeks that's what i'm committing to all right right. um so we we will do that 
And then we will also do top five Deadwood characters we've promised. And I think there is passion for that too. Yeah. And, uh, and as I think I teased probably like six months ago, um, oh, I, yeah. the itch for, the itch for Star Trek is, is strong with me. And I found a, uh, uh, like-minded podcaster in Barry Lamb, uh, who makes high Nation, And we have committed to recording, um, an episode, uh, bonus episode for our Patreon listeners on a specific Star Trek, the next generation episode that I will leave unannounced. Because it's that exciting. <laughs> wow. I'm sh- p- shitting my pants just in anticipation. But uh, it's I'm going to start real a shit. whole podcast with Barry Lamb about so yeah, it's not real <laughs> shit <laughs> and ones and zeros. Just a <laughs> bunch of ones and zeros just came out of your In my pants, yeah. <laughs> Quishing around, you know. But it's fine. It's not real. Yeah, all right. So, <laughs> so thank you to everybody. Thank you. Yeah, let's talk about split brains. So there are, there's, as as Tamler said in the beginning of this episode, there's, I, I feel like there's just two sides to this. There's one, the empirical side, which is understanding what split brain patients are and what they say about how the brain works and what the empirical findings are. And then there's the part that's the philosophical implications about what it means to be conscious or what, what a self is. Um, and I, I think that, it, that, at least to, to introduce this, I'll talk about the empirical side first because there's some debate there. But but even with a debate, the findings are fucking fascinating, yeah. um, and it's something I get, I get to talk about to to my class in intro psych. But not all that much, right? Just uh, put it out there, and it it always gets. I think it it is a kind of a mind fuck um, for the students, or a two minds fuck. <laughs> The gist uh, of of these empirical findings are come from trying to solve a problem. Uh, the problem was that people with severe forms of epilepsy um, that were untreatable by drugs, uh, neuroscientists and neurologists realized and brain surgeons realized that there was a possibility of stopping seizures, which are essentially an electrical storm that spreads across the brain, um, that there was at least one way to stop the spread of the, of the seizures, and that would be to cut the corpus callosum, which is a bundle of nerves um, that connects the left and the right hemisphere together. And what this effectively would do for these patients would be to stop the the seizure from spreading from one hemisphere to the other, um, and so so minimize the, the 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 suffering of these poor epileptic patients. Well, they so they did this operation, severed the corpus callosum, and um, I think years went by. No, nobody really thought anything weird was going on with these patients because they were behaving normally. Like that is, they didn't have any novel deficits that were obvious, um, at least at at first glance. Um, But what, after a few years, what they started realizing was, and this came from experiments with animals as well, that realizing that uh, there in fact were were deficits, you just had to have the right measures. You had to have the right uh, uh, techniques to discover exactly what was going on in the brain now that the corpus callosum was cut. So this came in the form of experiments where you could present information only to one hemisphere of the brain. 
and usually this uh, at least the canonical set of experiments is um presenting visual information to only one side of the brain and i think this is this is the part that always at least confuses the students when I bring it up. Stuff that's in your right visual hemisphere, right? Stuff that is presented on the right side of, you know, if you were to to take all of your the angles that you can see with with all of your vision and just bisect that. Um stuff that's on the right gets directed through uh, your optical nerves into the opposite side of your brain. And stuff in your left visual hemisphere gets directed uh, into the right hemisphere. So here's here's what what researchers uh, discovered they could do. They could present uh, some visual stimuli only on one side of the brain by flashing it really quickly on one side. So what they discovered was the information as it was getting into the left side of the hemisphere could be processed in a different way than stuff that was getting on the right hemisphere. So, usually in normal people, the ability, the ling- your linguistic abilities are, reside in the left hemisphere um, th- th- as a general, like, rough generalization. So, if you present something to the right visual field and you're a split brain patient, you can say what you saw. So, you pre- present a tree and you say, oh, yeah, I saw a tree. If you present it on the other side so that that visual information is getting onto the right side, uh, to the right hemisphere. You can't say what you saw. In fact, those patients will say they saw nothing. But if you use other assessments, right? If you have them point to a series of pictures, they can point to what they saw. They just can't verbalize it. Or they can lift it up if, if it's That's an right. egg. They can lift up an egg. Right. right. Yeah. And and so um, so what you have is. A subject, a participant, essentially denying that they saw something, but nonetheless being able to uh, the being able to uh, use that information with right in in some other way. In some of the patients, actually, um, their your left and your right hemisphere even can seem to be fighting when <laughs> when you present information to one hemisphere and something else to the other hemisphere and you say, okay, now pick up the object that you saw. Um, the two hands might actually be picking up the two different objects and, and sort of fighting about it. In fact, this would happen in, in some patients in normal everyday life, their left hand and their right hand um, would actually uh, fight with each other. So I don't think you've said that each hemisphere also as a sign to one hand or the other. Yeah, that's right. So so your left hemisphere controls your uh, right hand and your right hemisphere controls your left hand. It gets a little complicated because your both of your hemispheres can control both of your arms. So, and in fact, there are some senses, right? Like auditory stimuli are processed on both sides um, of the brain. They're not, they're not lateralized in the same way. Um, and through the years, we've discovered uh, uh, this other kinds of lateralization. So, so the left uh, hemisphere, I already mentioned it does le- linguistic processing. Uh, the right hemisphere seems to more holistic. It can process images more holistically, whereas the left is more analytic in its processing. Yeah, I saw. So you sent me something, I think it was like this Alan Alda interviewing mm-hmm. Mike, Michael Gazaniga, and they used these paintings that were uh, there were faces made of fruit and vegetables, 
and they would flash it to both sides and one side would so if it was the and I, I think it's the left brain that would not see faces it would right the, it would the just, right side seems specialized to see faces especially fa- yeah. faces of strangers um and the left side sees it's more likely to see parts rather than holes so it would so if you ask the person they would say i saw potatoes and cucumbers or whatever and if you right. if you signaled to the right side to say whether it was a face or a vegetable, they would indicate that the, it, it, it saw a face. They wouldn't be able to right. say it, right. but they would somehow either draw it or point to a face rather than a, a vegetable. It's also, it's also important to say that over time, some of these effects go away. So there is some, some adaptability that there's, there's brain plasticity, right? There is, there is a way, um, it's likely the case that the one hemisphere is taking over some of the abilities that generally would only reside in the other hemisphere. Um, and so, so over time, even language, for instance, can actually start uh, being used by uh, some patients in the right hemisphere. One last thing, just in your summary, there is this idea of confabulation that the the left hemisphere, the left part of your brain, is in charge of creating a, a narrative that makes sense of what it is that you're doing. Sometimes you'll be right about that, but sometimes you will you will just make it up. You'll make up yeah. something that seems plausible. Gazaniga did these cool experiments where he would he would flash something to the right hemisphere, ask the person to hold up something, say an egg, or hold up what you saw. Now the left brain doesn't think that it saw anything. The right brain holds up an egg, and then yeah. Gazaniga would say, "Why are you holding up an egg?" And they would say. Like, oh, I had it for breakfast or something. I had that's eggs right. for breakfast. I guess that's why. And they would believe it. And so... And Gazaniga says that never, ever is it the case that the left hemisphere doesn't come up with some reason. Right. right? Like, it's it's just 100% that the left hemisphere will offer up an explanation, even though it has zero idea, given the nature of the studies and the nature of, of the... Uh, of the surgery it has zero idea it will always try to come up with with a story um and so so he refers to the left hemisphere as the interpreter the implication is that perhaps the left hemisphere is is just constantly doing this it's just that we um we don't notice it i have a question about that though after a certain point don't these patients start to figure out that if if they're asked why they're holding an egg, it's a good chance that it's because it got flashed to their right hemisphere. I mean, they don't keep them ignorant of the experiments and what their purpose is because they were working with these patients for like 20 years or 10 years or whatever, right? Yeah, I I am assuming from what I read, I, I didn't read in any of the papers an explicit saying that they never start inferring that. Um, and it seems as if they're always confabulating. You would think, you would think, but even in that video, which we'll put a link to that Alan Alda, Scientific American Mind, that patient who says that he's been doing these studies with Gazaniga forever, doesn't seem to have any, uh, like any access to this. Like he, he it's yeah. almost like, like, uh, when you're, you know, embarrassed at something you did and you're trying to explain why you did it, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it seems like, like somebody with dementia, you know, some, some people like 
when you ask them like what's going on they they want to come up with a story because yeah. just because right it, it seems as if that's what's going on um yeah and it's interesting yeah. that they know that they're there to test for these kinds of things <laughs> yeah. and that they st- i mean if this is true that they would still do it by the way one of the cool things is that gazaniga video is that guy can draw with both hands oh, yeah. independently that's crazy which we that's can't crazy. do which we can't yeah we can't do so like so, there's actually there's deficits, but then there's like also superpowers <laughs> that you get from it because achievement unlocked because they're not connecting. They can so so then the the interpretation that Gazaniga favors is that we have at least two consciousnesses in our bodies, and the left brain then at least in these split brain patients they have two consciousnesses. And yeah. under the right controlled conditions, you can see that. You can see yeah. that the left brain cannot have any idea what the right brain is up to. And if confronted with that, will make up a story. Now, I guess in, in everyday life, the reason nobody picks up on this is because they're constantly darting their eyes around and they're constantly. And so the the left brain is able to see what the white right brain is seeing and yeah yeah that's but, right there's actually a, a number of things which we'll talk about I, I i'll talk about it more in a second there's a there are a number of ways that these patients actually do transmit information um between left and right that ha, that does not rely on those bundle of nerves that that bundle of nerves gazaniga does it's weird because in the empirical articles that I was reading, he doesn't seem to make such a like a a strong claim about about consciousness. Um, right. In fact, he seems pretty, you know, he seems pretty straightforwardly like, well, here are just the facts of the matter. Like this is the kind of information that crosses, and this is the kind that doesn't seem to cross. But then, in like his textbook and stuff, he he at least seems to endorse this dual consciousness. And I think it's important to point out that one of, uh, one of the reasons that you can say it's dual consciousness is the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere are in su- in a lot of ways completely redundant, right? That is, you can do um, it's it's in some ways just a mirror image. It's like the the body's you know the this bilateral symmetry in our bodies is just sort of a in the brain. It's just a way of having two different hemispheres that can do the same thing. So, um, for instance, my niece. Um, had like crazy brain tumors um, and was causing severe seizures to the point that they had to not just cut her corpus callosum, they removed an entire hemisphere of her brain. She had a full hemispherectomy when she was like school age, like seven or eight. And um, yeah, it's amazing now. She graduated from college. It's amazing to see how, how much she can do like she does it's not even immediately obvious what what you can tell after a while is that she has a little bit less control of one side of her body um but but you know she acquired language she actually lost uh um, which hemisphere did they take out they took out her right hemisphere if i'm recalling correctly um so i i talked to her once as a as a teenager and i was asking her about this and i was saying like they took out half of your brain, right? And she was telling me about the stuff that she had like, you know, she lost a lot. She had to go back to like first grade basically and relearn everything. 
Um, but she she was able to relearn it. And part of this is that when you're that young, uh, the plasticity is is just greater. It's even greater. Um, yeah. It, yeah, like if it was, they removed half of our brain now, we'd be screwed. But I was like, did you lose any memories? And she was like, yeah. At first, I didn't remember who my sister was, but it but it strangely like it it came back it came back to her. So what do we make of this? Uh, let me. Because I, I find this fascinating, and there's all sorts of implications that I don't understand. Um, we can talk about the implications for free will. We can talk about the implications for personal identity. But let me just play a little bit of a skeptic about how interesting this is. Yeah. We all are familiar with feeling torn about something, feeling conflicted. We'll literally say, I'm of two minds. Why would it be that surprising that there are, you know, like dedicated parts of our brain that might be pushing us to do one thing, another part that might be pushing us to do uh, another thing or understanding things in different ways? And why isn't this exactly what I would expect, I guess, is what I'm saying. I, I You know what? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not prepared to defend that interestingness because i was thinking the exact same thing as i was reading this all like basically all day today um there is a really interesting empirical question here about like what you know what's going on with the different hemispheres how much communication uh is possible without that bundle of nerves all of that stuff but as far as the implications to like consciousness i suppose that you have a metaphysical view that there is one self and that self, you know, unless you're a crazy dualist, um, that self is your brain, right? Like that is, and, and you have this unity, you know, that, that, that even under conflict, you, you are the one having conflict, right? Well, that's weird. What's the you there? But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that maybe if you have this sort ontological, okay, you really believe that the self and we should talk about the, I think Dennett makes this point very well. Um, you could have the belief that yourself is your whole brain and that when you split the brains into two, now you have metaphysically and ontologically, you have two individuals, whereas before you had one. I think that is the, the thing that people find interesting here is that somehow cutting the communication channels between the two um it's just magically yeah like magically makes two people it would be like you've made a copy so let's let's think about when we're experiencing conflict there is a sense even when we're like do i have another drink do i grade this paper there is this other self that has to decide this higher self that has to decide between these two options. And while it totally makes sense that we have different parts of us pulling us in different directions, there's still someone that's being pulled in both directions and we yeah. identify ourselves with that someone. And so the idea that there all of a sudden can be two different someones that aren't able to be unified by this one is the thing that is so striking and counterintuitive based on our understanding of ourself. Yeah, it's uh, almost like you cut a worm in half and both sides regrow and all of a sudden you have two worms whereas you only had one. Like I think that's metaphorically like, you know, and 
or taking out the taking out one hemisphere and putting it in another body like phenomenologically you always feel like you are a singular entity now but isn't that the idea that this is a left brain feeling because there's plenty of times where i'll find myself you know walking into a room and not knowing why i walked there right like so the it could be that that feeling of unification is one part of me but then there's all this other stuff that i do without being consciously aware of it or being able to vocalize why i'm doing it or that's habitual that's for for all sorts of things this is a big part of any person's life maybe mine more so maybe that feeling of unification is just this one center which is in charge of making sense of what it is that I'm doing. But if you told me that there are all these other parts that are governed by other things, you know, emotions I might not be aware of, habits and stuff like that, that just is consistent with my experience. Did you happen to watch that CGP Grey video? Um, I, I sent you a link, but it's it's... Uh, just like a little animated yeah, description yeah. of this yeah, yeah the way that he says it is is like you you might be right exactly right that this is you know it's your your left hemisphere is is in charge of explaining all this stuff like but but it's genuinely fine like it's it's obvious to you that you might have motivations that you're not aware of or whatever um and the the way that he describes the problem is that Maybe there is a like the fact that your right hemisphere is incapable of of uh, talking means that it is it's just been a silent partner to your left hemisphere this whole right. time, and your left hemisphere is sort of the bully self that's constantly. I got it's and it's just like an oppressed like like a a wife in the 16th century or something. right <laughs> or in the 50s. <laughs> right. So, but. I think this this I didn't see this talked about too much. I don't know if if you did, but the fact that even the split brain patients don't have a disunity, a sense of like a phenomenological disjoint, um, it's only under these very very specifically constrained experiments that you can show like the right hand, you know, the the right hand's touching something in the left, and you can't they can't describe it. If you want to argue, like empirically, that's super interesting, right? That like the that the. But if you want to make a an argument about consciousness, it doesn't seem as if this is the right kind of of empirical information. Like these people do not have like a split sense of self. Like multiple personality disorders is much more interesting if that's if that's what you want to argue. I I think. Yeah. Right. I, I maybe what Gazaniga would say or. I, I have no idea, actually, how he would interpret that question or how he would answer it. But we don't really, even though they say they don't report any disunity, I mean, that's maybe what you would expect the left brain to do, to talk about it. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, if that's true, then it, it would be different. In other words, to use the Nagel terminology, what it's like to be them in everyday life is different from what it's like to be us, we might not be able to access that difference because they still will report. And, and it's true. And we, it, we wouldn't really know. I, I think that, you know, you were, you were bringing up the possibility that, right. Like, so the brain has specialized areas and they are, you know, 
one part of your brain is is going to be able to do something that your other part of your brain can't that's that much is obvious i think it really does boil down to the fact that each that the hemispheres in general are capable of all of the other stuff right that that like you can have a full self in in one hemisphere with all of the skills and abilities except for you know except for a few choice ones that you could demonstrate that that is that seems to be to me the most compelling source of that maybe we are two rather than one well and the right. fact that one controls language and that's where i think the bully intuition comes in is <laughs> yeah. that the right can be silently screaming that they don't want something but like the left hemisphere <laughs> is right. the one that gets to talk and right I, and it could, i mean it could it could be that when um so so suppose that you could just you know meld two people together magically i think they would become a new person and that person would be like you know through some just sci-fi like transporter error like they get melded that that new person would be a a brand new person then splitting them back it would be you know you'd be like yeah that was two people for a while there it became one and now it's back to being two i think that 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 maybe that can get me the intuition that the, the two hemispheres when they're connected are a single they're actually a singular unit unitary uh individual and when you split them you have created two out of one i don't think that that means that that we with our without the split brain are actually secretly two i think that's just it's just better described in the trivial way that you were saying that like yeah there's specialized specialized shit in one side Let's take a break, and then we'll talk about um, the Dennett article. And I also want to talk about the the challenge to Gazzaniga's studies, too. Uh, So we'll be right back. Hey, Dave, you know, I'm getting interested in psychology, the the methods of psychology, how it works. Um, But, you know, I'm a philosopher, so right now all I'm doing is following a bunch of psychologists on Twitter, listening to the Black Goat podcast and even two psychologists for beers. But I don't think that's quite enough for me to really get a good introduction to what psychology is all about. Is there any other way I could perhaps do this? You are in so much luck, Tamler. By, by the way, I'm proud of you and your quest for knowledge. I'm going to talk to the folks at outlier.org and maybe they can hook you up because outlier.org is an online education service um, that's different from the others. This was founded by the co-founder of Masterclass and they've developed what I think is the world's best line university level courses. And it's taught by some of the most celebrated educators in the world, like our very own Paul Bloom, special, special friend to Very Bad Wizards. Um, they have engaging videos. They're beautifully filmed. They really are different than that sort of crappy one camera, watch a professor walk around the stage kind of uh, course. Um, they give credits that are transferable from a top university. So when you send your transcript, uh, they don't have to ask what outlier.org is. And it's only $400 per course. Compare that to the thousands of dollars you would pay at a brick and mortar university for the same class. Uh, to be honest, I mean, I'm a little biased because I was part of this, but uh, is probably not as good as what you would get from outlier.org. Um, 
and I got to say, you're getting interested in in psychology. Uh, I'm I'm interested in in calculus, and that's the one other course that they're starting with. There's intro psych and there's intro calculus, and um, I just want to give a little shout out to the calculus professors on this course, which are just amazing. There's a woman named Hannah Fry who is um, a staple of one of my favorite YouTube channels, uh, Number File, and she is one of the co-instructors of this course. And I just like want to learn from her like all day long. So, uh, maybe it is just a, uh, my, my science envy or I want to like, <laughs> like add some real, real rigorous science to my psychology, but I think I'm going to take that. So scientists have math envy and philosophers have science envy. It's just, it keeps rolling down. That's right. Social scientists have real science envy. Yeah. Even physicists have math envy. Yeah. And then we go, and then we go all the way back to religion. Hopefully they'll add that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big circle. Yeah. <laughs> physicists have religion envy yeah that's right <laughs> um so uh, learn at your own pace and schedule there's an online interactive textbook there's free tutoring and study groups again 400 bucks uh for university credit course spring enrollment is just open there are limited spots but register now to start the course in january 2020 sign up and in the spot that asks you how you heard of outlier.org put very bad wizards so once again go to outlier.org sign up for january 2020 classes intro to psych or intro to calculus and if they ask when they ask how you heard about them say very bad wizards thanks to outlier.org for sponsoring this episode of very bad wizard Okay, so now uh, now let's talk a little bit about the empirical challenge. So actually, uh, one of our listeners uh, sent us this paper, right? Um, it's a pa- I, on I Patreon. Yeah, on Patreon, and I hadn't come across it. Um, and this is a, a paper from 2017, which we'll also put a link to in the show notes, that challenges the empirical claim um, that there is actually um, that much separation of the two hemispheres going on. And this comes from a set of experiments essentially showing that uh, two patients with split brains um, showed substantial amounts of of, uh, abilities that would traditionally be ascribed to only one side of the brain, but but in both sides. So this, this was a set of experiments where they would actually use the traditional visual field um, method of presenting information. But what they seem to show is that um, it's not the case that they cannot, uh, for instance, um, recognize something with their right hemisphere when it's only presented into their left hemisphere. So that they're, they're arguing that there's a lot of, that, that in fact, there's quite a lot of cross-communication. So this is both a challenge to the empirical uh, claims that were made by Spearing Zenek and, and most people since then, and may have implications, at least they believe, for theories of consciousness, where this turns out not to be a problem. This turns out not to be the problem that we thought it was. Because well, Yeah, it turns yeah. out to be, a, in some ways, a deeper problem. Like, I think some people have interpreted this to support some kind of more mysterious, if not dualistic, or at least non-material uh, theory of consciousness. Because if you flash something to just the right hemisphere and the left, and the person is able to articulate what they saw, then somehow that information has been transmitted without going through the normal communication channels between the two hemispheres, because that's been cut. That's right. So, so there is there is evidence that there is a minimal amount of communication in subcortical structures 
um, uh, that, but, but the amount that seems possible just physiologically is very little, right? It doesn't seem as if you could get that much information across the two. So it seems a bit mysterious how this information is making its way from one side of the brain to another. Yeah. Um, now, let me describe what Gazaniga thinks, um, which I think is a plausible, uh, a very plausible interpretation. In, in, in Gazaniga's paper, he says that the interpretation of the data that, the, that these authors are making is actually uh, mistaken because they're underestimating the amount of, the, of communication that comes from uh, what they call cross-queuing. So uh, cross-queuing is um, the communication that can occur outside of the brain, right? So there is information that, uh, that these patients are giving themselves through other means. So um, they explain all of the crazy ways that they've actually observed that communication can happen not in the brain, but in things like the hands. So uh, you might make a, a facial response and the facial nerves actually, um, because they're connected in the face, even though you're making a facial response to only one side of the, like of your, the visual field is being it's transmitting only to one part of the hemisphere and your face responds, that's giving you information about what you saw because your nerves are on both sides of your face. Or they talk about um, cases in which um, you you are, uh, because pain isn't lateralized, um, if your left hand is holding something but you can't describe it because it's information that's going into your right hemisphere, um, the patients will poke themselves with the tip of the pencil that pain will actually go, that information will go into the other hemisphere because it's not lateralized and they'll infer that, that, that it's a pencil because so they've effectively communicated. And what, uh, I think the really cool way that, that Gazaniga describes this is, um, he says, think about, so this is Lucas Voltz and Michael Gazaniga. He says, think about, um, conjoined twins. So he talks about the case of these, uh, twins, um, that have two heads, right? Two brains. They're two different people, but they have only two arms and two legs. They're surprisingly coordinated, even though the twin on the left side is controlling the left and the left leg and the left arm, and the twin on the right side is controlling the right. Um, there is for sure no cross-brain information going on there because there are two brains that are completely controlling it. They are surprisingly coordinated. They have, uh, they, they can even, you know, learn, they can do super complex like sports, right? Coordinate their bodies. And uh, they point out that this is solely because they have learned to really pay attention to all of the cues from the body on the other side. Not because there's cross-brain information, but because of their skill, essentially, in, in observing what the other twin is going to do with that part of their body. He says, these patients are doing the same thing. And that's why, over time, you can see them improving in their skills. Yeah. So, this is interesting. It's something sort of heartwarming about 
Like, it's like the two sides of the brain started to work together. They're not fighting anymore. They're working together to solve the problem. And that's the idea. Now, they can't communicate in the normal way. And so they come up with other ways to communicate, like stabbing yourself with a pencil or doing in a way that um, allows... I guess the idea is it. this would then allow the left brain to be able to articulate what's going on or maybe there's some analog also for the right for the right brain. So the right brain, if it sees something instead of is now trying to help the left brain describe it um, right. through these other it's it's hard to sort of figure out to what extent. So the way this is sometimes described is. On the Gazaniga side, there's two consciousnesses communicating with each other. And in the, I don't know if you said the name of the lead author of this study, it's Yair Pinto. In in his view, it's just a single consciousness that has a certain deficit that it's making up for. Like, But it's, it's, it's not two different consciousnesses residing in the same person. I think that Gazaniga, in in his sober moments, like in this paper, there is no real discussion of the two consciousnesses. He is just trying to say that um, that the empirical data from the Pinto uh, studies is easily explained by this uh, like offboarding cross communication um, that was underestimated. So this is in some ways just sort of a boring empirical argument where Pinto and I, he has a co-author, I think. Um, is saying, we did these studies right. We flashed, uh, in a very brief time, we flashed something into the uh, okay, left right. into the left hemisphere. And, and Gazaniga is saying, no, you think you did it right. You think you did it right, but what you didn't realize is that eye movements can occur um, after that that can reliably give information to the other side of the brain. If it is going on between the, if the communication is intrabrainal or whatever, yeah. like there is a question of how that's happening, right? That's and that's that's where I think it's like, well, wait. So what are you saying is <laughs> right. happening in terms of the consciousness? Like what this would say about consciousness, I it strikes me as irrelevant in some sense whether it's happening through cross cueing or through the subcortical connections as long as it's able they're able to communicate then it really doesn't matter right i think that's right right i think it's right i mean it might like you know i i suppose that that knowing that it's happening in the brain seems like a more at first it seems like a more natural way but like but why? you know yeah. metaphorically because because you and I communicating and coordinating our behavior um, seems like it really the the way in which we're doing it by communicating this way seems like it leaves a lot of room for the possibility that you are a different conscious entity than me. But if we were somehow joined neurologically, that seems less likely that we're actually two different consciousnesses. Uh, but I think that that's just a, like a, a mistake. Yeah, I think that's a, just a mistake of understanding like. You know. I mean, this is where the Nagel thing is interesting. Like your example of the conjoined twins, you're right that there's no way their brains could be communicating. But in terms of whether they have single consciousness or double consciousness or how to make sense of that, 
that might be like according to Nagel just unanswerable. So there's a way in which they're going to show evidence of being more split, but we have no idea if there is something that it's like to be both of them at the same time. You know, like people will say this about entire communities or this is like Hofstadler, right? Like the Douglas Hofstadler stuff. Hofstadter, uh, yeah. Hofstadter, yeah. Consciousness emerging of all these kind of individual uh, entities doing their own things. And, and that's ultimately what we think the brain is you know it's it maybe yeah. it's happening within our skulls but it's still all these things going on that create some sort of singular sense of self for us but how it does that i mean that's the big mystery yeah and it and it seems as if what's happening in the split brain patients is a lot of the the gaps that are left in the intra brain communication are just being picked up by other by these other things and in order to continue that feeling of a, of a unitary self. Um, And I, and I I think that like, there's something deeply right about the, the claim that like this sense of self is clearly there's not a place in the brain where the self resides. Like this is clearly a bunch of entities that are, my brain is a bunch of entities that are working in coordination. And, and, and the fact that I feel unitary isn't a natural result of, of, of um, some metaphysical category that, that emerges when these things are combined just right. But rather like, what else am I going to feel? Like I'm, you know, I'm in, (laughs) It's in the it's physical like an boundaries of this one principle, but for like consciousness, right? Like, yeah, yeah. If we're yeah. feeling this sense of self, then this is, then it's then it's all these different things are working together to make that happen. It's got it. Yeah, and it's like well, you know when I wake up in the bed tomorrow, like a lot of people like have have uh, emailed and tweeted about this just because of the Star Trek transporter thing and whether there's you know whether, but but they'll say. Well, look, when you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning, like who's to say that you are the same person? And I like, yeah, absolutely. The only person to say that it's the same person is that I am the one talking like that's right. Like that's that's it's it seems as if, yeah, like deeply you could say, well, I am nothing but a bunch of things unified. And I complete I completely agree. But then let me. Let me ask this, and then maybe we should go to the Dennett piece, which I think this is all leading up to. But do you think the Siamese, or not the Siamese, the the conjoined twins might have this unitary sense of consciousness, at least at times when they're coordinating really well? Um, Is there this entity that's created, or is there something that it's like that's not two different people kind of that it's not like if you and me god forbid were like attached and we'd all uh, and what that would like it's like centipede style yeah like human centipede (laughs) you know i couldn't help but think but like the the left hemisphere is the dom and the right is the sub um right no but like based on what you're saying that shouldn't be surprising it's, it should seem counterintuitive because there are two heads and we normally assume, assume one head, one consciousness, but it shouldn't be that surprising based on the fact that we don't get how like all these 
weird different things going on in our brain produces that single sense of self. So why should two heads and but just, you know, the same number of arms and feet and all of that and all connected in various ways? Why should it be surprising if that created a single consciousness? Yeah, I so I I suspect the answer is something like like if I had to put money on it, I would say, I would think that it's something like um but some blurred something between being two different people and being the same person and that just turns on the amount of like cross communication that they're having like they they have to coordinate so intimately that there must be something that it's like to be them but given everything we know about how the brain works um and and that there are two and they talk to each other and they can express different interests even that that it's fair to say that like they they are two selves but i think that just even the thought that there must be an answer that's either one or two yeah. is the wrong is the wrong right. way to think about it because it I must agree. really be something that it's like to be them um that's different than it's what's like to be us there or and different than it's like to be either one of the exactly. ones if you ask them yeah by the way did we ever talk about there there are interesting like questions given the, the nature of our categories. Um, I read a philosophical paper. I don't remember if you and I talked about it, or if you sent it to me or if somebody sent it to both of us about um, consent in cases of these conjoined twins. Oh yeah. Long. God. Did you? Yeah. It's ringing it's a pretty bell. fucked. It's pretty fucked up because it was about sexual consent specifically, where if they share one set of sexual organs and essentially one, one body, two arms, two legs, um, that, uh, whether it's morally permissible for one of them to agree to sex um, and the other one. <laughs> so it's morally permissible to have sex with them. Is it consensual when you have sex when one of them says yes? Or do both of them need to say yes? And 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 what's scary about that, so let's say, I mean, intuitively, no. If one of them's like, no, 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 I like, then th- let's say it's wrong. But what if that's just our right brain a lot of the time? <laughs> You know, like, yeah. please. <laughs> Every time I jerk off, I feel like the right brain is the sub saying no, but I, I can't just get off on it. <laughs> uh, my right brain is the one that's doing it. Like, so all of a sudden I'll find, I'll find myself just jerking off and I'll, and then my left brain will be like, oh, it's cause I wanted to. You but know? is it because, is it because you're only doing it with your left hand? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Is your right is your right hand slapping it away? Well, let's go take a break and then let's talk about this Dennett uh, center of narrative gravity thing. We're gonna take one final break to talk about HelloFresh. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Get easy seasonal recipes and pre-measured ingredients delivered right to your door. All you have to do is cook and enjoy. HelloFresh is home cooked. Meals made simple. Say goodbye to endless grocery store trips and takeout food. HelloFresh has you covered. HelloFresh makes cooking delicious meals at home a reality, regardless of the comfort of your kitchen. Break out of your dinner rut. I can get in a dinner rut sometimes. Same thing every single week. But with HelloFresh. 20-plus seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. There is something for everyone, from family recipes to calorie-smart and vegetarian and fun menu series like Hall of Fame and Kraft Burgers. 
HelloFresh has more five-star recipes than any other meal kit, so you'll know you're getting something delicious. So actually, um, uh, my daughter's been grateful because she's not eating ramen every day anymore. Like where you just pour hot water into it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, sometimes I get creative, you know, put a little bit of canned corn in there. But uh, now... (laughs) Now, HelloFresh, we're both vegetarian, actually, so um, we get the vegetarian meals, and uh, I'm I'm actually learning a lot about how to cook and what to cook. So even if I don't get a HelloFresh uh, recipe that night, like I've gotten some new ideas. But I got to say, the zucchini and tomato flatbreads that we made, I I never thought I would like a bread with zucchini on top, but that shit was so good. It was zucchini, tomato, lemon ricotta, basil, honey and cheese mm. on a on a flatbread and it's actually really quick it was re- one of the quicker ones because i know they say 30 minutes but some sometimes it can take me a little longer but this one was actually quick i like the um, honey so i like the little drizzled honey on it the honey oh my god I, it was it's cheating because it's just adding sugar to a meal that's but, not cheating. but it's so good yeah it's yeah so good. no i agree like that was the thing so one of our favorite of the recipes was the pasta parmesan with zucchini, Tuscan herbs, and marinara sauce. And just baking the pasta like that is not something that we did. And so we've had other recipes just inspired by that one. And that's one of the best things that HelloFresh does. So if you would like to become a HelloFresh customer, we have a special offer for you. Get nine free meals with HelloFresh by going to HelloFresh.com slash very bad wizards nine and using the code very bad wizards nine at checkout so once again get nine free meals at hellofresh by going to hellofresh.com slash very bad wizards nine and using the code very bad wizards nine at checkout thank you to hellofresh for sponsoring this episode All right, welcome back. We're going to conclude this discussion by talking about, I guess this is an article in uh, edited volumes. See, edited volumes aren't (laughs) The self as a center of narrative gravity. And he just asks this question, what is a self? He answers, the self is a useful fiction, something we create, to make sense of our experience. And what's really, I think, it's so deceptively simple, but he gives this example of the center of gravity of an object. Um, so if you talk about a center of a gravity, it, it's, not, it's not something that actually exists. It doesn't have a mass. And so like if you talk about a lamp and why it doesn't tip over, the center of gravity is low, but there's nothing that that reduces to, it is a theorist's fiction that is informative. It actually, if you say, why doesn't the lamp lamp tip over, and you say the center of gravity is low, that is an explanation that's different than, like, it's nailed to the table or it's supported by wires, he says, but it's not something that is... Uh, reducible in the way that other parts of the lamp might be reducible to atoms and various other things. So he says that this is a nice analogy to think of the self, right, as a as a theorist's fiction. To tell a story, to give some sort of continuity to our behavior and our thoughts and our feelings, 
we posit this thing called the self. It's not something that actually exists in a way that like you can reduce it to neurons or to cells and molecules, but it is something that does have some sort of explanatory power in, in, in roughly the same way as the center of gravity has some, some power, and it, and, it, and it will shift depending on the context. I love this analogy. Like, and when you say it's not real, like I understand what you're saying, and and Dennett is saying that too. But it, the, I think the power of the analogy is that the center of gravity is real in some deep sense. It exists in some deep sense. It just doesn't exist in the way that atoms and molecules exist, as you were saying. So, what this analogy provides you with is a nice way of saying, well, like, look, if you think that you're going to dig into the brain and find the self, then you've misunderstood what we mean by a self in the same way that if you want to find where the atoms that contain the center of gravity are, you're not going to, you've misunderstood what a center of gravity is. Yeah. Um, so it actually is a thing that works in these causal explanations, just as everything else does. You're not, by calling it a fiction, you're not saying it is just like a, an illusion. You know, you're stupid to believe it, right? It is just a different category of thing. Um, right. And and I find that a, like a super compelling way of, of describing this. And there are certain things, there are certain questions that will have indeterminate answers. So he uses here the analogy of a fictional character. You have this fictional character named Ishmael that refers to something real. It is a character in Melville's Moby Dick. Um, and you can ask a lot of questions about uh, Ishmael that will have answers because there are answers in the book. But there are certain questions that you can ask about his history or certain emotions that he might have that, that are just indeterminate. There's no answer to those questions because they, the creator of this fictional character didn't, uh, didn't say it. So it's not that there's – the fact that there's certain questions you can ask about it that are indeterminate doesn't mean it, that the character doesn't exist in, in a real sense. It just means that their existence is different than um, our existence. And so no. the self's existence here would be different than the existence of like a hand. And there are questions that you can ask about the self that we just, we can't answer in principle. But that doesn't mean that it's, that they're, that it's not doing any work. It's not doing any explanatory work. So then he goes on to develop this analogy and says, take a, a character, like he's here talking about Updike and his character Rabbit that appears in, in three uh, different books. Um, you could ask uh, Updike, you could say, uh, well, tell me this about Rabbit. And maybe if he's working on a new, uh, on a new book about Rabbit, he, is, he's, he starts coming up with maybe a story um, that is going to add a bunch of additional information uh, about Rabbit. So he is, the author, is coming up with this stuff. That's essentially what we're doing when we are talking about ourselves. We are working through uh, this construct. We are building this, and this is where the, the split brain stuff comes in. We, we are interpreting uh, our own actions by creating this fictional self and, and sort of describing all of these things about us. And then he, he launches into what many of our uh, listeners have asked us to talk about, um, the 
Julian Jaynes' book, the, the Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which that essentially is an explanation of the emergence of the self as coming from the explicit interpreting and explaining of our own actions and sort of talking to ourselves and how how over historical time we would have come to believe that this was a real thing. us uh, yeah a real thing and and i guess if this is like a left brain thing to do there's a little evidence like in the cases where it confabulates so the idea is that it's just a, our sense of self is this massive accumulation of narrative explanations that are that try to make sense to us so it, my one question about this is it's one thing when we're doing this to other people i guess who who is this person when we're doing it when we're trying to make sense of our own behavior to ourselves who is this person that we're making sense uh <laughs> of our behavior to you know if our sense of self is 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 trying to make sense is is the idea that it's always social and then out of the social interactions emerges a singular sense of self that will exist outside of social conditions you see what i'm saying yeah. like yeah, there yeah, is yeah, this yeah. sort of presumption that somebody needs their behavior explained to make sense of it that's why, you know, I, this is a cool, this is a cool idea. I don't know how you would ever claim to have evidence one way or another about it. But when he's talking about the, the Julian Jaynes book about this, he, he tells the story like, okay, so, so uh, we're talking here about consciousness and like the, the sense of self, but he, he wants to describe the emergence of consciousness from being something with little to no consciousness or sense of self into this uh thing that where we said and so he he tells this account of uh um you know first language being merely merely expressive in the same way that a bee doing a little dance is is expressive like it's just it it just sort of becomes this adaptation where um if you need help uh and you grunt out and somebody comes to help you you sort of soon realize that one way um, and this is over evolutionary time, obviously not a individual person discovering it in their lifetime. But uh, you come to realize that you, you know, that this this expressive function of calling out um, is is one that is adaptive. And then after a while, you start just like analogous to the split brain patients uh, saying things. You're essentially when you're saying things out loud, and you're and then you're hearing that you're saying things out loud that this is where that sense of self emerges. So I think what, he, like he said, I don't know if this is answering what you're asking, but he's saying that out of nothingness comes, comes uh, a notion of self merely through this offboarding, like this linguistic process of, of talking to yourself. And you start, you start saying, well, like who is doing the talking? Um, and, and you just start integrating that into your own consciousness. He actually thinks uh, Julian Jaynes actually thinks, I don't remember if, if Jen says this, that early on we didn't have this attribution of all of these thoughts of being unitary to the self. So actually, that's why people thought that gods and spirits existed, because they might have a thought they didn't attribute to themselves, or they uh, and they, they thought it must be something else talking to them. 
Yeah, and there's an interesting question about how much language contributes just the actual structure of language that has I as a subject. Yeah. There is something a little mysterious about this idea where you hear yourself speaking out loud and you start to wonder who is that thing well who's the you there but again this could yeah, be just yeah, yeah. A, a problem of our language right um yeah. Uh, yeah i like this idea and maybe this is i just like things <laughs> i like when people call things category mistakes uh <laughs> yeah paragraph where he says the chief fictional character at the center of that autobiography like the autobiography of a single body is oneself and if you want to know what the self really is you're making a category mistake after all when a human being's behavioral control system becomes seriously impaired it can turn out that the best hermeneutical story we can tell about that individual says that there is more than one character inhabiting that body This is quite possible in the view of the self that I have been presenting. It does not require any fancy metaphysical miracles. So the idea is, in most people, this idea of one continuous self, unified self, makes total sense. It's the best way of making sense of, for other people, like it's a little more complicated when you're talking about for that person, but for other people, it's the best way of understanding that person is as a single self. But if certain things start happening, uh, multiple personality disorder or split brain under certain very controlled conditions, th- that might not be the best story, you know, to that useful fiction kind of breaks down. And at that point, maybe a different story is better or maybe it's just indeterminate. Yeah. Don't if you're asking what the truth really is, you're making a mistake on par with asking like was Moriarty really the second cousin of Sherlock Holmes? Right. It's not hard for me. I think I used to have more resistance to some sort of or acceptance that that the self is sort of a a fictional continuity, but I I I, I really don't anymore because it's just as real as as anything else as Dan as Dan argues, and and I think that I don't know if you have this intuition, Tamler, but when I think about, imagine that you encountered a ten year old Tamler and you had a conversation with him. There's a there's a real sense in which I think, well, yeah, it's it's almost silly to think that this is the same person as me. Like like I have absolutely no problem saying the only thing I have in common with ten year old David is the physical continuity of our bodies. Like not yeah. anything about <laughs> about like my personality, even my identity, my beliefs. There's so much different there that if we if that mind existed in a separable body, I would have no problem saying that's a completely different person. Um it's just that it doesn't make sense to talk about that that way about ourselves. I mean, right. I think when we say I'm the same person as I was when I was 10, we sort of know what we're saying there. We don't think that there's some continuous. I used to think that. I, I think I used to actually think that, that there was like a, like a metaphysically, like this is, this is the same consciousness. There is a sense in which we feel like, like, you know, I'm... I'm getting close to 50, right? Like I'm uh, I'm in my late 40s. We'll leave it at that. And like there's a <laughs> sense say, in which 51 close to 50. <laughs> there's a sense in which like I feel the same 
as I did it. Like there's this spark that's the same in me that it that was in my thirties. And like yeah. if I look at old videotapes of myself, like it totally but again, this is not when I'm ten, this is when I'm thirty five or whatever. There is a sense that I still and I and, and and like sometimes I think I still feel the same, even if like yeah. I can't play like basketball anymore without get you know like being like <laughs> right. wrecked physically or and, yeah. yeah or i feel different but uh, but the eye is the same you know it's like yeah. a it's it's a very uh it's a weird. A, a, yeah a very strong you know and the closer i am to me present day the 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 the, the more i feel that way i do i think that and i don't remember if we've talked about um parfit's view uh, of this um but I think that he is taking the fictional part so seriously as to want to uh, say that normatively we should dismiss the fiction. You know, he's like denying the center of gravity. That's right. Right. Yeah. Like, like I think that Dennett is building a good case about why it doesn't follow from all of the things that we're saying about the discontinuity that you should therefore reject any notion of self as illusory or or you're being a fool to believe that you're the same person you were yesterday. Right. It's like saying Sherlock Holmes, don't even talk about Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) Sherlock Holmes doesn't exist. It's just a bunch of words. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's just ones and zeros. Um, He he ends with this David Hume quote, which is like, you know, it kind of in some ways just – summarizes everything but i think it also raises a couple of questions maybe we can conclude by talking about this so here's the famous dave david hume quote from treatise on human nature for my part when i enter most intimately into what i call myself i always stumble on some particular perception or other or heat or cold or light or shade love or hatred pain or pleasure i never can catch myself at any time without a perception and never can observe anything but the perception. If anyone upon serious and unprejudiced reflection thinks he has a different notion of himself, I must confess I I can reason no longer with him. All I can allow him is that he may be in the right as well as I, and that we are essentially different in this particular. He may perhaps perceive something simple and continued, which he calls himself, though I am certain there is no such principle in me. Now, here... I think he's saying something more radical. Like I think Dennett concludes this as a sort of support for his view. But I think what David Hume is noting is that he doesn't, when he really examines it, even see the fictional continuous self here. And this is something that I think is very common in meditation. When you're talking about insight meditation, when you actually start to look for a self— what you realize, this is exactly what Hume is saying, is there's nothing apart from what uh, consciousness is at that very moment. There's no you that's perceiving it. We talked about this with Sam Harris when he was on last time, right? There's just that conscious experience, no experiencer that we can find. Now, I think that's more radical because... Even the fictional self then is not apparent once we really examine what's going on in the present moment, that there doesn't seem to be a unified anything. There's just this experience. Yeah, I think you're right. I think although Dennett is using it as support for his proposition, I do I think Hume is more like the difficulties 
than I had with meditation and, and the subjective experience or Hume doesn't seem to have it all. And uh, we also, this touches on the Galen Strawson article that we read a while back too, where- The episodic ethics? Yeah, the, uh, maybe some people just have less of this intuition. Maybe they, they just don't have this coherent sense of self um, over time, the narrative sense of self that that I seem to have maybe. Um, but see, I, I'm making a different point though. Like it's not like everybody's the same in this sense. Like you, as much as you might think you have this continuous sense of self, I think David Hume would agree. I, I, I do have that, except when I examine myself very carefully at a particular moment. Then there's no self. There's just the experience. If I look for it, I can't find it. But even though he says, like, maybe somebody else is different than me on this, I think what he's saying is, I don't believe you. Like, I yeah, believe no. if you look really closely at, at for your sense of self, you won't find it either in yeah, that moment. I, 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 think you're, I think you're right that he's making a metaphysical claim. I was sort of try, <laughs> trying to explain why he's making this particular metaphysical claim. But I think you're right. He's making the stronger claim that when, especially when he says like, seriously, if you think that you have a self there, I, I can't reason with you. He's not saying he's, he's not saying there's an individual difference between us. He's saying you don't see the truth of the fact that there is no self. Right. And, and I think that's the reason that I like this article by Dennett so much is that he is providing an account that doesn't deny the metaphysics so deeply of self. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. it's weird because I think it sounds like Hume is doing, is doing and saying the exact thing that Dennett is saying is a category mistake where right. if, if you think you're going to find the self through, uh, you know, just like a center of gravity, you won't find the molecules that are the center of gravity. It's weird to say that therefore, you know, that self doesn't exist. And I think Hume might disagree with Dennett. Yeah, or maybe Dennett would accuse, although he, he, does, he just quotes him approvingly here, maybe he's saying, what you call yourself, it, you, you're taking that to, the thing that you're looking for is the thing that isn't really the self, you know, like, yeah. uh, or at least he, the sense of right. self that we have. Um, he's quoting Hume, he says, right before he says, as David Hume noted, no one has ever seen a self either. So, so he he seems to be using the Hume quote as a way of saying, like, well, yeah, like if you try to introspect and find that center that is yourself, that that's like not going to happen, right? It's right. not going. But but I think Hume used this as evidence that there isn't actually. And I guess this is why the sort of the love affair. I don't know if it's still going on between Buddha, Buddhism and, and neuroscience and, right. science, and cognitive science, science of consciousness. Um, but when I was in grad school, that was big. Owen Flanagan was uh, a part of that. Um, but I think there is this kind of way in which th- that understanding, the Buddhist understanding of the no-self is very much in line with what's going on at, at this yeah. level. And it's even, I think that the useful part is that the, the left hemisphere as the interpreter and explainer and the confabulator is really sort of sympathetic to this. But even the Gazana guy and the people who have used the split brain stuff to argue for two consciousnesses, that even is something that the no self view would, would say, well, that's, yeah, 
You've gone, you've gone a step in the right direction. The but, tiny but baby step in the right. <laughs> right. Well, are they saying that there's two selves or are they saying, look, there's multiple selves. We've just been isolated. We've just been able to show that there's at least two. Right. We can't cut the brain into three pieces. What we can really do is cut it into two pieces. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, join us next time. Join multiple us. There's at least four of us. If, <laughs> right. Even if I was just doing this myself, I would say, join us next time. Very bad with it. The great boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Just a very bad wizard.